Hello, Monetization Nation. I'm Nathan Gwilliam, your host. Jake Jacobs helps organizations, teams, and individuals make monumental changes. Over the past 35 years, he's worked in 61 industries and has consulted 96 organizations from Fortune 50 to national nonprofits and community theaters. He's also the author of Leveraging Change, Eight Ways to Achieve Faster, Easier, Better Results, and has supported more than 210,000 people directly on important changes to their business. In today's episode, we're going to discuss three ways we can leverage change to achieve faster, easier, and better results. Here are some of my key takeaways from today's episode. Number one, applying change to our businesses will lead to faster, easier, and better results. Number two, when we make changes, we should pay attention to continuity by focusing on what stays the same. Number three, we shouldn't decree change. We should give our employees and team members a say in what the changes are. Number four, to help facilitate change, we should have accountability and support partners. Number five, if we can start to make small daily changes, it will likely have a ripple effect. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jake. Great. Thanks so much, Nathan. I'm pleased to be here with you. Can you start off by sharing with us something that you are super passionate about? Well, th this one's going to be an easy one, Nathan, because I am super passionate about my work. I uh, found it very early in life. So I, my consulting career started when I was 21 and I was tending bar at college and uh, everybody was complaining and I said, maybe it could be better. And so I did an independent study. I went to the owner of the bar, my first consulting contract. He said, fine, Jacobs, do whatever you want. Just don't F anything up. So that's how I started. That was my very first contract. Uh, I didn't. F anything up, but um, but I've been really fortunate. I've I've been doing what I've been doing uh, for thirty five years, and um, helping people create their collective future and and doing it faster, easier, and better has been what I've done my entire career. So my passion goes deep. I write about it. I speak about it. I consult to it. I join podcasts about it. Um, the more I can talk about it, and the more I can learn about it and teach, the better. Yeah, I'm one of those people that I love change as well. And and there's a lot of people. I think most people out there do not love change. And and they're resistant to it and it it makes them really nervous and and they look at people like you and me as kind of weird. But but I love change and I love leveraging change to drive growth. All right, can you share with us one of the greatest success stories or home runs that you've seen hit related to leveraging change. Sure. So th this one is one of those, Nathan, that people will say, well, what have you done lately when they hear the story? But back in 1994, um, and unfortunately, this is quite present day as well, there was a pending pandemic of tuberculosis. And people were not aware of this, but it was in New York City and they were getting multi-drug resistant strains, which means that people weren't getting their medication regularly. And when they didn't take it, then they would end up with cocktails and eventually they might end up with something that didn't work at all. So we brought five city agencies together and they created what they call the blueprint for TB control. And they came up with all kinds of new ways of doing business. They had joint budgets, they had shared protocols, um, they had agreements. Now these agencies were the prison system and the shelter system and the public healthcare system. These were people who'd never played well before 
and they needed to play well this time. And we worked with them. And since that day in 1994, there's been an 85% year-over-year decline in TB incidents in the city of New York. And last year was the lowest recorded number of TB cases in New York since they started collecting data in 1897. So for me, not only socially does this have a, a huge impact, but um, in terms of sustainability, because a lot of people can make change happen in the near term, but does it stick over time? And I, I call the change that doesn't Teflon change. And so it looks good for three or six months, but, but over time it doesn't stick. Well, this story in New York is stuck since 1994, and it's, uh, it's the proudest work that I've done. Congratulations, and thanks for that work that you did to help keep the rest of us safe. Uh, what's the biggest failure or mistake that you've seen related to change managed poorly? What'd you learn from that? Well, unfortunately, I had an upfront front row seat to this uh, story I'm going to tell you. This was in the United Kingdom with the employment service. So they're in charge of um, getting people jobs and, and paying them when they don't have jobs. And we worked with them. We used to like to say kingdom wide, which you don't get to say very often, but we worked with them kingdom wide. So across all of the United Kingdom and um, we said to the leadership team, you know, you need to take this seriously when they give you input, right? We had 800 people together giving them input on the strategy and there was a turnaround session. So overnight, this leadership team was going to take all of this input from 800 people, read through it, summarize it, synthesize it, and come up with a new version of the strategy going forward. And frankly, they screwed around. They did not pay attention. They didn't do good work. They came back in the morning and they re read it back to the group. And uh, we had a deal that they were going to stand and clap if they agreed or sit and hiss if they didn't. The neat thing about hissing is that you can't tell who's doing it, right? So uh, also, you, of course, people not standing. Well, they read back their strategy and nobody clapped out of 800 because they hadn't paid attention to what people had said and they deserved it. And so in real time, what we did is we said, okay, let's take this offline. We'll do what we call the double feature. The large group of 800 continued working on what they could given the strategy wasn't set. And the executive team went off to work on the strategy and they, and this time they took it seriously. They spent an hour and a half looking at all that data, came back with a new version and that new version got the standing ovation, but the price that they paid in terms of uh, uh, in integrity and honesty and political capital, it was quite significant because everybody in the room knew that they hadn't read what the uh, group had said and they didn't value what the group had said. And so, you know, if I'm looking for worst case scenarios, that's one of them that certainly comes to mind. So the point you're trying to make here is listen. And and when I use the term listen, I'm not talking about just with our ears. I'm talking about, you know, reading the data, look looking at the analytics, talking to the people, um, you know, gathering all the data you need so that when you're leading change management, you can you can be making the right decisions that are that people are going to buy into. Okay, so this is your book, Leveraging Change. Can you talk us through the the top two or three takeaways? What are the most important points that you would want people to know from this? So one of them is what that title's about, leverage. 
And so for me, the big idea is that applying leverage to your change work will lead to faster, easier, better results. And so this concept of leverage, it goes back to Archimedes, who was a third century BC Greek mathematician. I actually have a picture of him that I commissioned on my wall 25 years ago, way before I wrote this book, but I knew the concept of leverage was important. He's famous for saying, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it and single-handed, I shall move the world. So I believe people can move their worlds in the arena of change by using these eight smart strategic actions or what I call levers to be able to move that world of change. So one idea is that with, with the levers, you can get more done with fewer hassles, headaches, and problems. And in many cases, more done with fewer resources. So I'm talking people, time, and money because you're not spinning your wheels. What you get is a very effective effort and you start moving and moving very quickly into whatever the future is that you design and define. So that's one idea. Uh, let me tell you about a couple other levers. Um, one of them, they each deal with a problem, Nathan. So some problem that people have with change. A common one is change fatigue. So it has to do with when people are overwhelmed by change. I mean, it's just coming left and right. They've got a reorg. They've got a new uh, uh, technology system coming in. They've got new customers, work processes. All these things are coming in as changes and people get overwhelmed. And like you said at the beginning, they get anxious um, and they lose confidence and it ends up affecting performance. So most people look at that and say there's two changes. One is shove it down their throats harder, right? Like we're going to make these changes and just get with the program. I don't think that's a very good answer. The second one is to do less change. So if we're doing too much, take some away. And the problem with that is that organizations need to make these changes. They're not just coming up with them out of the blue. They need to do it for competitive advantage in the marketplace. So there's a third option. This is the one that I'm recommending, which is pay attention to continuity. And by that, I mean that what you don't change is as important as what you do change. So paying attention to continuity means making a list of all those things that are going to stay the same. And while we're not going to take things away from the change bucket, so that's still going to end up having that weight to it, but we're going to add things to continuity and balance that out because in a lot of ways, it's the other side of the coin. It's the other half of reality that in fact, all I hear about is change. I get exhausted. But if I start paying attention to continuity, talking about what are we already doing that we're doing well, what do we need to keep doing? What do we need to improve that we're already doing? All of this builds confidence. It builds conviction and it builds um, uh, an ease about people taking on more change. So that's one lever, right? And just another one that I've got that I think is most unique is called think and act as if the future were now. Now this deals with change being too slow. And often what happens with people when change is too slow, I think it's a paradigm issue. I think it's how people see the present and future. And by that, I mean the future, most people see it as occurring at a later point in time. We wait for the future 
and then we experience the future. But the problem with that is that that time period when we have to wait, it's, it's like dead time. We're, we're working away at things, but it's much smarter to reach out into the future, grab hold of some aspect of it, bring it back into the present, and start thinking and acting as if that future were now. So rather than waiting for it, we're going to accelerate the pace of it by bringing it back into the present. So if you're going to have a participative organization, that's part of your culture, then what you need to do is start participating here and now, immediately start finding ways to be more participative. So you're not talking about getting there at the end of the year or the end of two years. You're living that future now. Can you share with us a few of your favorite stories from the book that illustrate these levers of change? I think my favorite story in the book, there are 44 stories in, in all in the book. Um, my favorite one involves a guy named Joe. And, and honestly, that was his name, Joe. And this was in a telecom, and we were working on bringing the strategy and culture in sync. So they had lost a monopoly position, and they needed to be moving much faster um, in terms of the changes that they made. So their culture had to change dramatically. Well, we were working with the planning team to define what the process was going to be and the purpose of this effort and deliverables. And Joe, who is a union member, stood at the doorway. He refused to take a seat at the table and literally had one foot inside the room and one foot outside the room. So when we talk about being on the fence, I mean, this is a literal demonstration of being on the fence. And we said, do you want to join? And he said, no, no, I'm fine right here. So we didn't push him and we did our work at lunch. He grabbed his lunch and he sat down next to me and he said, you know, this is different. And I, and I said, in what way? And he said, well, most of the time when they roll things out in this company, they really roll them over us. And we just get flattened along the way. He said, what you're talking about is us having a hand in what these changes are and how we're going to best make them. He said, Look, I'm not against change. I know we need to change to be competitive. I mean, I, I'm not stupid, right? I know that. He said, but the way that they've done it in the past has been by decree. And I have, I have never liked it and it's never worked. He said, but you're doing this in a whole different way. I'm sticking around for the afternoon and I'm going to sit at the table here right next to you. So for me, that's probably my favorite story in the whole book because it shows what is possible. And he became the biggest zealot. So the biggest cynics often become the biggest zealots in terms of when they shift gears how far they go is from one side of that equation to the other side. Share with me two more stories. Great. So here's one. This was a retail operation that was in Europe, and they were trying to get a foothold in the European market ahead of competitors. And so we went over to work with the, um, the executive and the buying organization. We later worked with the merchandising organization and eventually with the whole business. But when we went over there, the, um, the CEO was always talking about change and he was always talking about accountability and he was hammering these things home and he called us and he said, you know, nobody is listening and I don't understand it because 
let me tell you, I'm, I'm yelling as loud as I can and as often as I can in as many different ways as I can. And this accountability, people are dropping balls left and right. And, you know, it's pissing me off. So I'm finally reaching out for some help. Could you guys help me with this? So we went over, was in England, and we did some interviews. And what we learned in the interviews was the key to turning this entire effort around. So here's what we learned. All of the accountability that he was focused on was great. It was fine, but he was missing a piece of the equation. And there's a paradoxical approach to change. I call it uncommon wisdom in the book. And when you have accountability to make that work, you need to have an equal amount of support. So you get support and accountability. Even these people who talk about, well, have an accountability partner. See, I, I think they need to have an accountability and support partner for change to occur. So we said to him, what support are you providing these people so that they can fulfill the accountabilities that they've been given? And he, he looked back at us with a blank stare because he was not about support. He'd never thought about support. Nobody had ever provided support to these people. So what was happening was they were just getting a deluge of accountabilities and responsibilities and tasks, but they weren't provided any of the support they needed. So what we did is we asked them, we had sessions and we said, well, what support do you need in order to make this happen? Now, they didn't get everything, right? I mean, I, I worked once in um, Hungary before the, work, uh, the wall came down, the, the wall in Berlin, and um, the CEO stood up. This was translated into my ear when people asked for things from him. And he said in Hungarian, you know, we are not Santa Claus and we are not the Easter buddy, meaning the senior executive team. And so it reminded me of that when I was working with this guy in, in England that, you know, that he's not Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. Not everything that people want, they get. But boy, they stand a better chance of not dropping those balls when they get some of the support that they need in order to get the job done well. So this was an example of where you've got half the equation there. But again, you're missing, like change and continuity that I just talked about, you've got support and accountability, which is another piece of the puzzle that's really important. So that's story number two. Hold on really quick. Before we go to point, point number three, I, I just want to talk real quick about our key takeaways. So what do you think the most important takeaway is from story number two, to have these accountability and support partners to help facilitate the process? Yeah, I think that we too often forget about support when it comes time to business. And most organizations are all about accountability. And you know, if you ask somebody anywhere in an organization, what are your accountabilities? I bet you nine times out of 10, they can list them right off their job description. That's what they get assessed on, measured against, their bonuses tied to it. So accountability is not an issue. If you ask those same people, what kind of support do you receive from the organization to fulfill those accountabilities? I think you're going to end up with a lot more hemming and hawing and people are not going to have as good an answer to that because, well, we just don't pay attention to it. We don't think it's necessary or it doesn't occur to us. And what I know from 35 years of working on the front lines of change efforts is that you need both of those pieces of the jigsaw puzzle 
in order to get the right answer. And, you know, it's non-negotiable. You can hammer all you want, just like this guy in England did about accountability. And without the support, you know, you're, you're it's, it's a setup. It's a setup for you. It's a setup for your people. It's a setup for the organization. Story number three. All right. Story number three. This is a transit company. And what I want to be pointing out is that the, the industries these people are in are, are radically different. So these levers are going to work for you no matter what your business is and no matter what your change is. Now, in this one, I was working with the executive team. I wasn't even working with the whole organization. Um, I had 10 years before, and it was funny because they're a transit operation, Nathan, and so they, they work on schedules, right? And so we had a 10-year plan that we developed with them, very highly engaging, participative process. And 10 years after we worked with them on the plan, they called me back and they said, okay, we're ready to move forward now. And I was like, you're kidding me, right? It's a transit operation. They run on a schedule and they finish their 10 years and now they're ready to move on. So, I mean, I got a chuckle out of that myself, but, you know, it's part of the culture of the organization. So in this case, we were working with the executive team and, you know, of all the things they were having problems with and your listeners are going to, I mean, people will raise their hands. Their biggest problem was meetings and the efficiency and the effectiveness of meetings. So we set up a subgroup to work on this out of the executive team and they came up with a whole bunch of recommendations. And one of them was that every meeting had to have a purpose and outcomes. They have to have a reason for your meeting, that specific meeting and what the specific outcomes were. And they made a rule, they said, look, if you don't have a purpose and outcomes out to people who you're asking to come to your meeting, 24 hours ahead of the meeting, you don't have to show up. So what do you think happened at the first two meetings after this agreement was made? No purpose and outcomes, no attendees. People loved it because they were like, well, you didn't send it. I'm not coming. That was our agreement. So as they learned that, they started to have better meetings in the executive team. And then what they did is that each member of the executive team took this lesson back to their function or their part of the organization. So, you know, they had the, um, the, the drivers, uh, the mechanics, the route planners, the finance group, the HR group, all of them took this back and they started to have purpose and outcomes for every meeting. Now, one of the cool things that happened was they became a more results-oriented organization because they had the purpose and outcomes for every meeting. They started to use purpose and outcomes for every project, for every conversation. They're like, here's the reason I want to have this conversation. And when you tell people the why, it makes a lot more sense to talk about the what. So here they had an entire organization change its culture to more results orientation from the executive team making one change to their daily work. And one of the levers is make change work part of daily work. And so here daily work was the meeting and change work ended up rolling through the whole organization. So for me, the takeaway here is to look for opportunities in how you're doing work on a daily basis and see what changes you could make at that daily basis. I mean, one, one organization that I worked with, um, 
this was an instrument manufacturer for um, uh, uh, machining parts. So this organization said, look, we need to institute a project management system into our HR organization. They just hadn't run business that way. And so they did. Now, this was a regular way of doing business. This was not some huge change effort. So what we did, we trained people up in what they needed to do for project management. We gave them project management one-sheeters to one-pagers to be able to document their progress. And when they came into executive teams to be able to make their reports and their status reports, they used these sheets and they managed them as projects. So that's just another example of how you could make daily work part of your change work and then get two you know, two birds with one stone, two objectives with one effort. So these are good examples of a takeaway that says you don't always have to have a big change effort and lots of resources against it. Sometimes you could just make work on a daily basis better and then let that flow through the organization. Yeah, in, in the world of habits, they call that keystone habits, right? Where you you change one habit like you start to exercise, and then as a result, other goals that you have automatically change, like you start eating healthier because you're exercising, right? So I, I like that. You find the the keystone changes, the maybe small changes, but that will then have a ripple effect and impact many other things within the organization. Yeah, and that is the definition of leverage. That's what we're talking about when we say leverage change is that you get these dominoes that are set up in the organization around your changes and you knock that first one over. And like you said, if it's like exercising, then you, you also sleep better. The research shows when you exercise and you do want to eat better. So all these things line up. And the issue is, can we make that first change, that keystone change that you're talking about? Thank you so much, Jake, for sharing your stories and insights with us today. To learn more about or connect with Jake, you can find him on LinkedIn and Twitter. You can visit his website, jakejacobsconsulting.com, and you can check out his books, such as Leveraging Change, on Amazon. And there's links to each of those sites in the blog post for this episode at monetizationnation.com. You can also get my free ebook, Passion Marketing, and learn how you can become a top priority of your ideal customers at passionmarketing.com. You can also subscribe to Monetization Nation on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, our Facebook group, and on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode, and I wish you success as you strive to leverage change to grow your business. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.